Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Welcome everybody on behalf of the Institute for Policy Research here at the University. Uh, I'm Nick Pearce, I'm the director of the Institute. Um, in our work we focus on uh, research in our doctoral programmes and our events on major public policy issues and challenges, some of which the Vice-Chancellor referred to in her opening remarks. And None, perhaps, are more important than climate change. Um, so we are delighted that Professor Barrett is here not just to receive his honorary doctorate, but to lecture us on how to and how not to save the planet. And I think it's particularly appropriate that we're here to discuss and debate those issues this week when it's been confirmed that the Paris Climate Change Agreement uh, has uh, come into legal force, or will come into legal force on the 4th of November, with enough countries now having ratified it, that it will become legally binding. So a very important moment for us to debate and discuss when these kinds of international cooperation agreements do and don't work. Professor Barrett. Well, thank you very much. Um, this is more than an honor. This is like a deep pleasure for me. And thank you for coming. I appreciate that. Um, I can be more relaxed now, I think. Is that correct? <laughs> a little bit. Um, uh, first of all, Michael, make sure I keep to my time. Can you make sure I get a warning in about 10 minutes? As you noticed from before, I could go on for some time. Um, uh, but let me just start off by saying that when Michael first, now I can say this, the formal ceremony is a rule. When Michael first said to me, Scott, um, uh, how do you feel about getting an honorary doctorate? I, I, <laughs> I said, you're joking. He said, no, I'm not joking. I said, you're joking. I said, no, I'm not joking. I said, but Michael, honorary doctors are the big shots and old people. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael said, but you are a big shot. And you're an older guy. I didn't say I was an old person. But I'll, I'll, that reaction, I think, will stay with me. Uh, it's, um, it's quite amazing. I wanted to talk to you about something very important, and it is about what we can do as a planet, as, as a aggregation of people, to protect the Earth. Not for itself, really, but for us. So the newspapers, particularly in this country, like to talk about saving the planet, but really what, what they mean is acting collectively to make sure that we protect the resources of the Earth for our own well-being. And I don't know about you, but I don't think we've done such a brilliant job of it. And particularly in the area of climate change, well, I will say quite a few things, I think we've done quite a terrible job of it. And what we need to do is not just be upset about that, but to know how to do better, and the only way to know how to do better is to first understand why we got it wrong up to now. Because unless you can explain why things have gone wrong to this date, I don't think you're in a position to really recommend how we should be doing it, how we can move forward. What I want to do in this time is to tell you, I'd say that the most important single lesson I've learned over the last 25 years of doing work in this area and I'll just give you the 
synopsis now, and that is that the world is not very good at voluntary contributions to address problems like climate change. The world is exquisitely good at coordination. And we've basically spent 25 years trying to do what we're not good at. And I think it's time we started doing what we're better at. So that's where I want to take this, and there'll be an agenda at the very end of the talk. So uh, uh, let's, I can move away from the lecture, is that correct? Okay. So let's talk about uh, saving the planet. Again, this comes up again and again. And the point I really want to make to you is that the people who are engaged in this effort on our behalf um, are really not trained to, to, to know how to do this. I mean, a lot of these issues are unprecedented, so fair enough. But also, in my experience, the people who are engaged as professionals in this area of diplomacy actually don't understand that there's not only a science of climate change, there's also a science of international negotiations. And it bothers me that they proceed along paths without having any knowledge as to whether that those particular paths they're choosing will be successful. I think we can do better. So uh, just to sort of set the bigger picture, it's about as big as you can get, um, we think of, I mean, people trained in the natural physical sciences and so on tend to think of the world in this way, as there being one world, this beautiful um, blue diamond, as it's sometimes called. Um, but the reality about, so I'm already missing some words here. So I wonder, is this the PDF? Do you know? Is this the PDF? Okay, we're already missing some words here. So, um, but this is, the, the, this is another representation of the same world. But notice here, instead of having just the natural phenomena there in front of us, you now have the geopolitical map of the planet where you start to see there are nation states. And the essential thing to understand about these issues is that the problems are derived from these institutions of states and the problems will have to be addressed by these same institutions. And you basically have a kind of a collision between these two different kinds of worlds because these worlds here, these nation states, which serve us well in many, many ways, are completely the wrong kind of institution for addressing a whole global problem. And here's the one I want to spend a lot of time on, although I will mention some others, and that climate change. In this particular picture, which is a computer graphic, you're seeing carbon dioxide as it's being released into the atmosphere, that's the orange and yellow, and of course it's in the uh, higher latitudes, closer to where the population centers are, where manufacturing is, and so on. Th these molecules become quickly assimilated and spread uh, more or less evenly around the planet. Um, and they affect the climate for everyone. So individual individuals like us and countries uh, cause emissions to be entered into the environment, but all countries and all people everywhere and in the future will be affected by those decisions. Uh, so these are, this is what I want to understand. You know, if I, we're an expert on wildebeest. I'd show you a photograph of wildebeest. Well, I'm interested in these people uh, and what they do about the negotiations. And the way I tend to think about them is that they're playing a game. This particular picture, I think, comes from a James Bond movie. I'm, not, I'm afraid I don't get out very much, so I don't know, but I, I believe it's from James. So basically, 
I'm going to go back and forth between this and this. And this picture here is an abstraction of the picture we saw before. So the way to understand the negotiations is not to get too close to them and stay there, but rather to pull back, think abstractly, and then go back in and see if you can understand things better. And one clear way to understand this is to play a game. So I don't have the time to play a game with you, but I'll tell you about a game I play hundreds of times, literally. And imagine that I've given each of you two playing cards, a red card and a black card. So everyone has two playing cards. Everyone knows that everyone has two playing cards. And you must hand back to me one of your cards. Now, which card do you hand back to me? That's up to you. But you should know the consequences. And the consequences are, if you, hand, if you keep your red card, you gain five uh, pounds. And you get one pound for every red card handed in by anyone. Now, if I played this game with you for real, what do you think would happen? You're pro I know you're a special audience, of course. <laughs> Goes without saying. But I, I, I played this game a couple hundred times, at least with every kind of audience you could imagine. Uh, real negotiators, only environmentalists, only economists, only people from West Africa, and so on. And the results, qualitatively, are always the same. Some people hand in their red cards and some people don't. And that the ratio of people handing in the red cards tends to be between one-third and two-thirds. Okay. Now, um, in, it's in everyone's collective interest that everyone hand in their red card because, let's say there are 200 people in this room, if everyone handed in a red card, then everyone would get 200 pounds. But there's a tendency for people to want to hold on to the red cards because no matter what everyone else does, you're always five pounds ahead if you keep your red card. So the outcome could be that everyone gets five pounds because they held on to the red card, when it would have been possible for everyone to get 200 pounds. Now that game is called the prison dilemma, and it pretty much, or the linear public, public goods game, and it pretty much characterizes uh, the, the problems I want to discuss today, and especially uh, climate change. The reason we fail to address climate change, I don't think it's for the reasons you often hear about. Um, people don't believe the science, and there's no political will. I mean, you have, always have to ask, why isn't there political will? Um, I, I think the reason is because this is a supreme collective action problem. Um, now, um, this is as, as technical as I'm going to get, but I do want you to look at this picture because it's a graphical representation. We're at university, so you know, I should do this. I'm obligated to do this. Um, uh, this is a graphical representation of the game we just played. Here I'm assuming that there are one, I didn't know the turnout would be so great, so I assumed uh, 100 people. Um, and what you have here are the number of the other people who hand in their red cards, okay, on the horizontal axis. And these are the other people, there are 100 in the room, so you're one of those people, so from your perspective, there are 99 others. And this is the payoff you get that depends on what you do and what the others do. So if no one else hands in the red card, and you do, you only get the one pound for handing yours in. Of course, everyone else also got that one pound. And you get five pounds if you kept your red card, given that no one else handed in the red card. And if you go to the other end, if everyone else hands in the red card, you get those payoffs. Uh, on the right, and obviously you're much better off. The best we can do as a group is for everyone to hand in their uh, red card and then everyone would get 100. 
Um, but if we fail, we're down at this end, and everyone ends up with five. Okay. So in many ways, the task of international cooperation is to somehow get the world to that open circle on the right axis and away from the closed circle on the left axis. So think of it that way. But what's driving behavior are the positions of those curves. Because as long as the blue curve is on top of the pink curve, um, the incentive is always going to be for the individual not to contribute. And we, I think we need to take that seriously. Because that seems to have a big effect on behavior. So for the group as a whole, everyone should contribute. But individuals will be thinking, even if everyone else contributes, if I hold back, I get even more. Now, people have many impulses. That's not the only one. So I don't believe that people um, are only motivated by greed. Of course they're not. Um, at the same time, I think it's very important to uh, not to, um, to, to be too um, uh, false in how we understand things, because self-interest is a very powerful motive. And uh, you certainly see it in international negotiations. Now, uh, Astrid and I have played these games uh, in experiments. And this is one of my favorite pictures. Uh, this, by the way, I think is a, photo, is a, photo, a picture, an image, of the climate negotiations. Uh, I'll explain why. What you have on the horizontal axis, these are the rounds that teams are playing. So these are teams of uh, five people, groups of five people playing, uh, five individuals at groups playing. Um, and this is the first round, and it goes down to 20 rounds. And what you're seeing on the vertical scale are the number of people who are, in a sense, handing in their red card. Okay? So what you see on the far left, when the game first begins, um, three people are, three out of the five are handing in the red card. And then the next round, two hand in, and then one, and then zero. And then zero again. And then you stop, and there's a pause, and then you play the game over again. And then people come back with renewed optimism despite how things went the last time around. And they, they, you know, they come in, let's try it again, let's do it this time. OK, now two contribute, one's dropped off, and then one, and it goes down to zero again, three rounds, zero, zero, zero. OK, we try it again. OK, one more time. Let's, come on, we know what we need to do. We have to supply this public good. We need to save the planet. One person contributes. That cynicism is creeping into this room. You can feel it, right? You know how it goes. And then zero, zero, zero. And when you get to the last one, they get to try again. No one contributes. And now everyone is deflated. Um, and this pretty much is how I've understood the climate negotiation. I think it's followed that kind of pattern. So every time we start anew, there's an excitement. We can do it. All we have to do is try again and be a little more determined. And, and no, we, just, we have a hard time getting off the ground. Uh, now, why is that? Well, when you look at people like us, um, one thing we find in experiments, I say we, I mean, Astrid and, and uh, people in that area, um, is that uh, some of us are what are called conditional cooperators. Altruism is actually fairly rare, quite rare. But many people are conditional cooperators, meaning that they're willing to contribute provided others contribute. And that's really quite important to them. So the reason you tend to get quite a few people contributing at first is that a number of people are conditional cooperators. That's shown again and again and again in experiments. But what happens over time 
is that cooperation falls. One reason it falls is that people tend not to contribute one for one. In other words, suppose that we're playing with many cards and the average of all of you contributed five. Now, if I were a free rider, I'd contribute zero, but as a conditional cooperator, you know, I might respond with your to your five with four. And imagine we're all doing that. So no matter what all of us does on average, each of us the next round is a little less, and then a little less, and then a little less. That puts you down in this, like this. The other thing that drives behavior are the number of free riders, the people who don't contribute anything. And they really bring down morale. So they just bring the whole thing down very rapidly. These things tend to show up again and again in experiments, and I think they show up again and again in international negotiations. So there's a picture of Sisyphus. Uh, this, the Aaron is a bit like Sisyphus, his, his assignment to push this boulder up the mountain. And of course, as soon as he gets to the top, it rolls down again. He has to go do it over and over again. That's kind of how I've understood the uh, effort of cooperation in these situations and um, in the negotiations. Now, what helps? Uh, well, communication helps, uh, but it tends not to have a persistent effect of helping. So it helps, but isn't enough. And you know, the one thing that international negotiators do and are good at is communicating. They talk a lot, as you've probably noticed. Um, but that's not enough. Uh, something that helps are punishments. Uh, punishments meaning that if others, let's say, the, let's say the free riders don't contribute, maybe the conditional cooperators can punish them. And if the free riders know that they'll be punished, maybe they'll modify their behavior, even if they're still interested only in their own self-interest. And, and contribute. Um, but what tends to happen is the punishments are effective only if they're very efficient, meaning that it costs the person I'm punishing or the country I'm punishing a lot more than it costs me to impose the punishment. Because if the punishment hurts me a lot, I'm going to be less inclined to want to do it. I get emotional. I will do it sometimes, for sure. We're all like that, I think. But it's harder to do it when it's going to cost me a lot. And I know it's not going to cost the other person or the other country that much. So that's one of the things. Um, another thing is that in these experiments, people actually have to punish in order for behavior to change. And when you punish, you're actually bringing down the payoffs. So when we played this card game in the room, could potentially, our, well, the room, let's say the one on the screen with 100 people could potentially get 100 euros each. Well, if we're punishing each other, we're not going to get that. We might be down to 40 or 50 or something like that, or even worse. Um, and finally, if you allow everyone to retaliate, what can happen is different players are, are punishing, and you can even have the free riders punishing the conditional cooperators early, just to sort of warn them, don't punish the free riders later on. And so you get a lot of punishment going all over the place. Um, and that starts to approach Thomas Hobbes's idea, idea of what society might be like without um, a sovereign. So this uh, image here is from Hobson's famous book, Leviathan. And he says that the way to address these kinds of problems, these public good um, uh, problem, uh, collective action problem, a sovereign is needed to keep people in awe and tie them by fear of punishment to the performance of their covenants. So the covenants are the agreements they enter into for mutual gain and to make sure that people fulfill those um, pledges, those, those <coughs> undertakings, they would be punished if they didn't, and that would, in fact, give them the, the rules to consent to, uh, to behave well. Uh, and this idea uh, found favor with Garrett Hardin, who wrote a very famous uh, article published in Science in 1968 called The Tragedy of the Commons. 
in which he said the tragedy of the commons requires mutual coercion. So coercion is about punishment. Mutually agreed upon, so now he's thinking about um, how we arrive at decisions as a collective uh, by the majority of the people affected. So he's actually pointing towards democracy as, uh, as a remedy for this. He very much follows on Hobbes. Now, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in economics some years ago, um, uh, the first woman and also a political scientist, um, she's famous for her work showing that people, at least in smaller groups and in local communities, can cooperate. Um, and in fact, she has argued that cooperation uh, at that level is better than having the sovereign come in uh, with the threats of punishment and so on. Um, so there's a case to be made for uh, self-organization at the societal level. However, uh, Lynn and colleagues uh, looked at whether this would apply at the global level. She said, well, there are three reasons why it's more difficult. One is scale, there are a lot more people. Uh, it's true there are, of course, more people, but people are aggregated, and we actually have governments to negotiate on our behalf. So I'm not sure at, at that level whether the number is that unusual. We have around 200 countries today. Uh, diversity, this is obviously very important. Cultural diversity can decrease the likelihood of, of finding shared or common ground. Um, and if the world has, if people have very different values, they perceive things very differently, then this is always going to be a block. That's a big problem for the world right now, are these differences. Um, and finally, and most importantly, and what I want to focus on is the law. The basic collective choice rule for global resource management is voluntary assent to negotiated treaties. Like this is fundamental. Even if you sort out the other problems, you still have this one. Now, what sovereignty means at the global level, countries have sovereignty under international law, which almost means that they can act as they please. It's not quite that, but it almost means that. Um, it does mean there is no world government. Now, you can have very rare instances in which the UN Security Council will uh, take measures that are uh, legally binding upon all members of the United Nations. But this is very extraordinary, and more importantly, uh, it only will have full effect if the Security Council, and especially the President Five, are willing to enforce uh, those um, uh, resolutions. Um, in the past, that's where the weakness has shown. Um, in, if you look at international organizations, they rarely, very rarely, make decisions uh, by majorities, not like a democracy. That the rule that tends to dominate is that um, you want something like a consensus. For example, all decisions by NATO, there is never a vote taken. They're all undertaken by consensus. And finally, and most importantly, participation is voluntary, meaning that if you don't like what the group is doing, you can just walk away. You wouldn't know anything about that in this country, would you? <laughs> uh, but you know, that has always been the case. Even if it doesn't happen, the threat that it might happen is always there. Always. And it's always been there uh, in the European Union, although I'm not going to talk about that. Um, let me just make it uh, clear uh, by an example what, what the difficulty is in moving from the national level to the global. So I'm going to compare on the left and the blue uh, 
uh, very important law adopted in the United States for regulating emissions that cause acid rain, but also a lot of human health problems. And then the Kyoto Protocol on Climate Change on the right. Uh, both of them have obligations to cap emissions. So for Title IV, it's sulfur dioxide emissions. For Kyoto, it's greenhouse gas emissions. They both allow trading, something economists are very enamored of. Um, now, look at monitoring. Very precise monitoring of emissions at the power plant, at the stack level, um, under the US law. But under the Kyoto Protocol, um, you have self-reporting. So this is where sovereignty is starting to creep in. I tell you what I've done. You know you've heard that China, we thought they did one thing, and then they've done something. And this is how the international system tends to operate. I'm not saying there are no exceptions. There are some exceptions, but it tends to operate this way. Uh, participation, of course, is mandatory under US law. All plants that are covered by the law are forced to, to, to fulfill these <coughs> obligations. Whereas under the Kyoto Protocol, of course, participation, as I've said, is voluntary. So they don't have to participate. And in terms of compliance, there's a penalty to, for <coughs> non-compliance under the US law, which is so high that compliance literally is 100%. 100%. Thomas Hobbes, well done. It works. Whereas under the Kyoto Protocol, you have um, more or less a mess. Uh, you have Article 18, which actually says if there is to be any compliance mechanism that applies to binding consequences, then it must be agreed by an amendment. Now, a couple things to know about this. First of all, there is no amendment. And secondly, even if there were an amendment, it would only apply to the countries that ratified the amendment. And of course, they can pull out later, too. So enforcement at the global level is completely different than at the national level. Now, uh, when the negotiations, for example, the most recent ones in Paris uh, were publicized, you probably heard that a lot of people were very concerned that the agreement would be legally binding. The Europeans, for example, very, very strong uh, advocates for legally binding agreements. Um, but we had one before, the Kyoto Protocol. Canada, doesn't everybody love Canada? How uh, do you not? Uh, Canada loves international law. Uh, Canada, uh, uh, unlike the United States, ratified the Kyoto Protocol. However, Canada never got the legislation <coughs> needed down and was uh, going to miss their obligations under the Kyoto Protocol by a long shot. So what did they do? Well, one option, they might um, reorient their whole economy and try to do it at the last minute uh, to do that. Another one is they might have used this market mechanism to pay someone else to do it for them. Uh, they didn't do that. The easy one was just to walk away. That's what they did. So after this meeting in Durban, South Africa, um, the Canada's environment minister went back. And as soon as he landed in Ottawa, he gave a press conference. He said Canada was withdrawing from the Kyoto Protocol. That is how the international system works. And that's Canada. Okay, so it's not North Korea, okay? I'm trying to get you to understand. That's Canada. Everyone loves Canada. Canada is the biggest advocate for international law. And yet Canada did this. This is the system we have, and this is the system we have to work with. Uh, the climate negotiations. Okay, first simple. You need an agreement that does three things. Uh, first of all, every country, or all the big ones at least, but all, every country, let's say, is in, number one. Number two, you have full compliance, so they all do what they said they were going to do. And number three, they have to agree to do a lot. Uh, this is very important. To stabilize temperature, you must stabilize the concentration of the gases in the atmosphere. When you put greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, CO2, some of those uh, 
percentage of the volume we throw into the atmosphere will stay there for thousands of years. This is a longer term problem than nuclear waste storage. I'm pausing because people really have to understand how great this challenge is. Um, so you ultimately need to stabilize the climate. You ultimately need to bring emissions towards zero. There are a couple of things you can do I'll talk about later. But you ultimately need to bring emissions towards zero. This is completely without precedent. You have to reorient the entire global energy system, which basically means the entire global economic system. We've never done anything like that. Okay. And we're going to do it for collective purpose, the card game, not just because it's in our self-interest. That would be easy to do. This is not the industrial revolution. This is one that we need to cultivate and develop, and that's what's so hard about it. So that's what we have to do. If you look at the climate agreement, the first one, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, 1992, that one, everyone's in the agreement, full participation, they all complied, but that's because the agreement doesn't require them to do anything. Okay. The Kyoto Protocol. Now, that Kyoto Protocol asked countries to do something. Not actually an awful lot, but they asked some countries to do something. You can see what happened. The United States didn't ratify it, Canada did, and then pulled out. And after the then, it's disintegrated more. Even Japan just walked away. Russia, New Zealand, okay. Um, and that's because it did require that something to be done, but it provided no means for enforcement. Copenhagen, what they were going to do was going to, they were going to guarantee each other, and then they were going to really do it. I mean, they were going to take this thing that wasn't working, and they were going to make it even bigger. Wow. Not surprising that was not going to work. Um, and then they tried to get it to Paris. Now, in Paris, uh, what you have, uh, you'll have something close to full participation, if not actually full participation. Uh, you'll, you won't have to worry about compliance because there is no compliance. They agreed that from the beginning, except for very minor measures, that the obligations that countries have uh, put forward are voluntary. And that's the way the whole agreement was established from the beginning. Okay. They're voluntary. And then finally, um, require the parties to do a lot. Well, they don't require anything. You make an individual pledge for what you're willing to do. There's no negotiation about the numbers. So that's why Paris succeeded. Okay. It really couldn't have done much more than that, given that the world decided to approach the problem this way. What I want to get at is we could approach the problem differently. Um, okay, so this is a picture. You may have seen a picture like this. This is CO2 in the atmosphere. It's measured uh, from Mauna Loa, uh, top of a mountain in Hawaii. And um, the black line going up is the CO2 on average, and the red line are the variations you get seasonal because of uh, uh, deciduous forests in the northern hemisphere. Uh, the green line here is when the negotiations began. So I want you to look at the before and after, and then tell me if you think the negotiations have been successful. Now, we don't have the counterfactual of what would happen without them. I mean, maybe emissions would have gone up, concentrations would have gone up even more, but actually, I think it's fair to say the full effect of 25 years of unprecedented negotiations is basically very close to zero. It's so close that I couldn't detect anything. And yet, <laughs> we claim success. So Paris, uh, this is the, the, the lead team. And I think this team did, did do a brilliant job. I mean, you have to congratulate. To get the, you get the entire world to agree on something, you probably can tell from my accent. Uh, I'm coming from a very disturbed land these days. And uh, the idea that people can agree on something uh, is itself astonishing. Uh, but really, let's not be, um, uh, let's not be um, 
bewitched by this because uh, this is not this is not a great year. Okay? Not. I'm not putting it down. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. We should do it. We should make the most of it, of course. But we need to do much better than that. Uh, this is an analysis produced by the UN Framework Convention on uh, their own secretariat. So these are the insiders. This is as close as you get to the insiders of this whole game. And this is their analysis of all these voluntary contributions called INPCs. So this is part of the jargon. It's almost like learning a foreign language when you work in this field. You have to learn all this, these acronyms, which I, I'm terrible at this, the language language. INPCs, okay, means intended. You see sovereignty immediately creeps into the first word. Intended, nationally determined. You decide. Contribution. Even that word, contribution, is stepping back from a word they used to use called commitments. So there's been this complete retreat and the salute to sovereignty, basically, is what you're seeing here. Okay, but if what the, what the Framework Convention Secretariat has calculated is, if countries did what they pledged they would do, what would happen? Well, basically what they're saying is, historically, you have that straight line on the left, the solid arrow, and then you're going to get, as a projection, that's going to continue into the future. Uh, that's the dashed arrow. And then, because of the INDC, we think, there's a good chance we're going to drop that just a little bit. That's the pink arrow. Okay? Um, and that's assuming that countries will fulfill those obligations. And I can tell you in a minute that I'm skeptical about that. But the most important thing to take from this is until the year 2030, the projections by the Secretariat are that global emissions will keep rising. It is impossible for the world to meet its, its declared goal of stabilizing its climate at something like a two degree centigrade increase in mean global temperature over the pre-industrial world. It's impossible to do that with this trajectory. Full stop. Remember, I told you, basically emissions have to go down to zero. That's their analysis of what this great achievement in Paris, just so you understand. Uh, this is another picture. Um, uh, what they're showing here is what you would need to do if you wanted to meet that goal of staying within 2 degrees C. So the black line on the left, that's actual emission. The orange line, more or less, or band is more or less representing these INDCs, these pledges. And the blue is what you have to do if you're going to actually meet the goal. Not the probability 100%. I mean, if you take that, the, the turquoise one on the right, that probability of meeting the goal is less than 50% for that trajectory. Less than 50%. And you'll notice what happens. The Paris takes us up like this, and then all of a sudden, in 2030, boom, the world is like this. So what happens in 2030? I call that a miracle. And I'm not going to bank the future of the planet on a miracle. Okay? This is our job to try to address this problem. Now, going to what we can do in the science, uh, Astrid and I have uh, done an experiment on Paris. Um, and because one thing that's novel about Paris is that countries are going to make these pledges for what they're going to do, um, and they're going to be, this is going to be this, we're going to look at each other's pledges, and we can make a comment if we think that countries are pledging enough, maybe they should do more, um, and we're going to follow and see what countries actually do, and you know, if they don't do what they said they're going to do, then we could grumble, we could say something, and you know, maybe give them some shame, or maybe give them some encouragement, um, and the question is whether that process will make any difference. They went this route without any evidence that it would work. That's the thing that I find in line. You're betting the future of the entire planet, okay, I'm putting it kind of dramatically, on, on, on this. This is the best you can do. Um, 
Now, given the sovereignty, given the approach they're taking, maybe it is. Anyway, astronaut can go to the laboratory and we can ask whether this kind of arrangement changes behavior. And what we've done is we have an experiment in which a, a group of players are playing. They're contributing uh, poker chips. So we like the gambling metaphor, but not always the cards. Poker chips. Um, and they're going to choose a group goal. They're facing a problem that actually looks, we don't mention the words climate change, but the problem uh, is, is similar to climate change in the way it's constructed. They're going to uh, make a, a proposal for the group as a whole should do. That's the goal, like a two degree goal. And then they're going to make individual pledges of how they're going to contribute towards the group goal. And finally, they're going to make actual contributions. And all of this is going to be embedded in a system that allows for pledging review. They'll look over each other's shoulders, naming shame, that kind of thing. Um, the first treatment on the left here, no review with the old system, there is no review. And then you're going to have a review that's placed at the very beginning of the process, then the midpoint, and then later on. And what you actually find there, uh, if you look at the red band, the uh, proposals for the group go up, the pledges also go up, and the contributions, they look like they go up a tiny bit. What's actually happening is um, that the, um, the review process causes proposals to go up, like in Paris, in which the heat temperature is well below two degrees C, which is basically no one believes that's possible. To agree something that people don't even think is possible. Uh, makes people feel good, I guess. Um, then they make the pledges. The pledges don't add up to, there's no way you can, if you fulfill those pledges, there's no way you can meet the proposal we just chose. And then finally, actual contributions come in a lot below the pledges. Um, there is an effect in terms of what countries say they will do, which is what we've heard in Paris. In our experiment, anyway, we'll see what's going to happen in the real world. This is an experiment, right? We don't know yet. But uh, what this work is suggesting is that we should not count on Paris succeeding. I don't think we should count on countries fulfilling their pledges. Now, a lot of other things are going to change in prices, and all sorts of things are going to change in the whole global system, having nothing to do with climate policy. So <coughs> it's hard to know exactly, but the case seems pretty strong and it's not to be very effective. But there have been successes. I mean, you come here just completely to be depressed, right? I said how to, not just not how not to escape the world. Uh, there have been successes. So then that question is to why. This man, good looking man, should be very famous, I think. His name is Ali Maumau. And he is the last man on the planet Earth to have endemic smallpox. And he um, became infected with smallpox in the autumn of 1977. And uh, once it was discovered, he tried to hide it. But once it was discovered that he was infected, the authorities taking Hobbes' advice um, uh, uh, vaccinated people who had come in contact with him that they knew about, and then people who had come in contact with the people who had come in contact with him, and so on and so forth, in these kind of concentric circles. And because they did that, they were able to get rid of this virus everywhere on the planet, except in a few laboratories. And today, at least as far as we know, smallpox only exists in two laboratories. Uh, I think this is probably the greatest achievement of cooperation in human history. Because of this, millions of people, their lives have been, have been saved, and the vaccine that we used to protect against smallpox was a dangerous vaccine. It was expensive, but also killed one out of a million people. We 
couldn't use it very safely with people who had immunity disorders and so on. So the world was much, much, much better off for this. Now, why did this succeed? Michael pointed to this in his uh, remarks earlier. Um, well, normally what a country will want to do is it will want to have a public health policy. You know the problems in this country about the MMR vaccine? You really get a feeling there for how the state is trying to get people to get vaccinated for the benefit of everyone. But if you don't see the disease around, as an individual, you think, why should I bother? Uh, because babies are ignorant, and I don't like shots anyway. So you pull back a little bit, and that's what allows the disease to uh, persist. So this payoff in the blue shows you what a country gets when it just adopts its normal public health policies. The pink one, which is lower, requires much stronger action, which is to get rid of the disease entirely just within the country. And what you see here is the payoff to getting rid of it everywhere within the country. It's not strong enough, so the country won't do it on their own. But if you get over here, every other country does it, then the payoff jumps. And the reason the payoff jumps is that's the point at which you've eradicated the disease. So now it's gone everywhere. And because it's gone, you no longer need to vaccinate for it. So people are not dying from it anymore. And you don't have to vaccinate. So you're saving the money, you're saving all the, um, the pain and anguish and, and, uh, and incidental deaths associated with that. So that's this huge um, benefit. And the thing to notice about this is because the curves cross, the incentives change. So that if you believe everyone else will not play their part, you're not going to play your part, and you'll be over here. But if you have confidence that the other countries will act, then you will absolutely act. And this is why not only we succeeded with smallpox, but the current effort to, to uh, eradicate polio has been right on the verge of success since the year 2018. I'm not kidding you. Um, I can tell you um, uh, a lot about the polio effort. Um, it has a lot of problems, but those problems are largely like technical problems. They're not incentive problems. So here's a great achievement. And the reason it works is that the incentives here are very different than for climate change. Now, this raises the question, how much time do I have? I have this terrible tendency to go on. <laughs> 15 minutes, right? Um, now, you might look at this description I gave of climate change, the card game, and so on, and say, well, you know, is that really the problem we face? Because the scientists are telling us that all these catastrophic things might happen, or will happen. Um, and so I want to raise the question here about whether that game is right. Maybe we got the game wrong. Isn't climate change dangerous? This is a picture I got from a movie called The Day After Tomorrow, which I personally did not watch. Um, um, because you know, Hollywood wants catastrophic climate change to be, you know, it has to happen Tuesday afternoon between 4 and 5 o'clock. And every you know, it has to be this cataclysmic thing that's biblical. And uh, I think it may not work out quite like that. Um, but there are. Uh, tipping elements. So the concern about climate change is not just the increased temperature and things will get a little bit worse. It's also that there are systems that we rely on that are very vulnerable to changes in temperature. So if you have stable systems, the temperature increase may not be that big of a deal. But if you have systems that are potentially unstable, they have a tipping point, and temperature gets too high, the system may collapse. Collapse, by the way, may not happen Tuesday, 3, 4, 5. You know, it may take, um, uh, in some cases, it could take centuries. In some cases, it could be very quick. Depends on the system you're talking about. But you know, some of the things that people have been focusing on would be uh, collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, for example, which would increase sea level by several meters, or 
uh, melting of uh, ice on Greenland, um, changes in the monsoon, all sorts of things like that. So these are in many ways the um, consequences of climate change that should really uh, take our attention. Now, if you have this, um, then you could have a, a picture like this. This is not the picture I showed you before. Now, there's two curves which are parallel and they have crossed. But now you have the curves crossed and they start to look a little bit like smallpox. So what's happening here is, with smallpox, the world's cooperating so that we can get rid of something and avoid something that was already bad for us. Now, with, think about the climate in terms of climate catastrophe, the world's going to cooperate to avoid something that would happen if we didn't cooperate. So it's kind of a similar situation, and you might think it would work. Um, the difficulty is, yes, if you knew that there was going to be catastrophic, called catastrophic climate change, you knew it for sure. And you knew the tipping point, where it was. So you knew what the entire world had to do collectively. Then you have a meeting of the entire world, and you agree we should meet this goal, and everyone's going to say, yes, of course, that's a viable mistake. Now we're going to allocate the responsibility for fulfilling this goal. There'll be some kind of complaints. I don't think very much. I think they will agree. And then countries will just go off and do it because everyone knows everyone has a strong interest in doing it. I'm very confident this arrangement will work. However, the problem with climate change is that all these fears I've described are correct. That's how we understand the science of climate change. And yet, the threshold is uncertain. That is part of the science, too. And uncertainty about the threshold makes things very, very difficult. So um, what theory can suggest, this is the kind of work that Michael and I do. This is theory. So we scribble a lot of pieces of paper in these elegant models. We, we think they're elegant. Some of are weird, but we, we, we think they're elegant. We're, we're, we're mesmerized by them. Um, and what the theory suggests, very simple level, it's amazing how something so important can be written down um, I'm talking about the impact. So what happens if West Antarctic ice sheet collapses? Uh, <coughs> Consequences are going to be huge for us or not so great? Can we adapt? All those kinds of questions. Uh, the expected value, what you think is going to happen, matters. But the uncertainty around it doesn't matter at all. That's what the theory predicts. doesn't matter at all. Whereas where the threshold is to trigger this catastrophe, that matters. That's crucial. If the threshold is certain, we'll get our act together, we'll avoid catastrophe. We'll do it. You know, think about how the world organized to fight World War II. That's where the whole idea of the United Nations came from. And that was a successful effort. The world can cooperate if the imperative is overwhelming. Um, uh, but with what the model, what the theory predicts with threshold uncertainty is that you're back to the prison dilemma game. So if you have certainty, you have a coordination game, which is like the uh, smallpox example, which we did well, right? So that's that's a good thing for us. In a way, catastrophe is good for us because we get our get us to take things seriously. Mother Nature is doing the enforcing. That's the cool thing about that. But if you have threshold uncertainty, the theory prediction is a dilemma, and then we're in a situation where we want to do even more than before because now we're worried about these tipping elements, and yet we're unable to do it. We can't seem to it. So we feel even worse. Uh, and Astrid and I did an experiment. And uh, what you have, we did an experiment with groups of 10. And there were 10 groups playing each what's called a treatment. So here you have certainty about everything. Here you have uncertainty about the, uh, the uh, uh, impact, which I told you shouldn't matter for the theory. Here you have uncertainty about the threshold, which I told you was crucial. And here you have uncertainty about the impact and the threshold. 
Now what you see is because these colors are the same and these colors are the same, that the uncertainty about the impact really doesn't matter. The experiment showed that. The theory is that. That's pretty cool. Okay. So we don't have to worry about that. However, the theory predicts that uncertainty about the threshold should be crucial, and it is. Because here, you have uncertainty about the threshold, and in uh, 18 out of 20 cases, catastrophe was avoided. And here, you have uncertainty, and catastrophe was not avoided. In fact, the probability of catastrophe is 100% in almost every case. Now, you might wonder what's going on with these two cases up here in the red. This is where the experiments get to be quite fun. It turned out that, remember, you have groups of 10. It turned out that in each one of those groups, you had one person. I know you're thinking, God, there's only one person. There's one there wasn't, there wasn't only one person. In 18 of the other groups, everyone did the right thing. I mean, that's pretty cool, okay, I think. But you had one person, and that one person said he or she was going to contribute a lot. And then you could and I can guarantee you that those people would have felt bad about it afterwards because they lost out. Of course, their peers lost out too, but they lost out. I mean, in fact, they would sort themselves out pretty quickly. What I'm trying to get you to see is that two people have 200 misbehaviors. And in my experience with human beings, that's a pretty good ratio. So this idea of facing a catastrophe if the threshold is certain is very powerful for changing how people behave. Very powerful. Okay. But unfortunately, the science of this problem means the thresholds are uncertain, and we're in that red territory. So with that principle of game, don't take it literally, but as a description of the problem space, I think it comes pretty close to the characterization. <coughs> now, with eradication, uh, the problem was intrinsically a coordination game. It wasn't as if countries had to decide it was. Nature told us it was. You had to get rid of the disease in every single country in order to eradicate it globally. It had to be done that way. Uh, the threshold was certain, by the way. You had to have zero cases. Now, the question is, once you've understood that comparison, can we, can we make, Mother Nature, in a sense, is not cooperating with us, that's where the uncertainty is coming from, can we, can we make our own uh, coordination game? So this is the idea of strategy, which is how I think we need to think about this problem. Now, I'm going to explain the strategy. Um, I want you to know, before I show it to you, that I'm not proposing this. Okay, so when you see it, this man is crazy. I'm not proposing this, but this is an intellectual exercise. We're at the university here, and this is for getting us to think. Okay, so here's the proposal. Um, I don't know if you know the, the movie, um, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Strangle. Uh, the movie, uh, which, um, uh, I won't make it come, but contemporary politics. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is the idea um, uh, that uh, it belongs to Herman Kahn and Thomas Schelling, who I mentioned before, is also involved in this um, and movie, believe it or not. Um, but the idea that you use strategy to, to make the world safer with nuclear weapons. Um, and I want, this is the thought experiment for climate change. What my proposal is, it's built on this idea of, of um, mutually uh, assured destruction, is uh, we're going to connect all the nuclear warheads in the world to a computer that's taking readings from Mauna Loa. I showed you Mauna Loa before. The readings today are um, over 400 parts per million. Um, so let's give us enough time to sort ourselves out. Uh, and let's say we want to cap it at 500, OK? So let's give us a little time uh, for it. And we're going to program the computers 
So when Mauna Loa, the computers there, read uh, CO2 in the atmosphere at 500 parts per million, all of the nuclear warheads will be detonated. And none of this can be changed. Once it's programmed, it can never be changed. Now, if that were the case, my question to you is, do you think we would then reorganize the global economic system, the energy system, to avoid catastrophe? I've asked this question to other groups, and people are sometimes very skeptical. I'm pretty confident we'd do it. <laughs> I mean, I'd say at least um, 198 out of 200 would be the ratio. I think we'd do it. I'm pretty confident we'd do it. And the reason is, the reason is we know the threshold is 500, it's certain. And it is truly catastrophic, so we would get it back together. But of course, I'm not proposing this, and nor it turns out that Herman Kahn never proposed that, even though it's, he sometimes attributed, the proposal sometimes attributed to him. Uh, but it does raise our imagination to ask the question is there an acceptable strategy that we could adopt that would have an effect to change our behavior? Because we're changing, not ourselves, we're changing the game, and by doing so, we change how we want to behave. So here's another problem, uh, another beautiful problem. I should mention, by the way, I'm thanking people today. Uh, one person I've learned a lot from is someone named D.A. Anderson, who led the smallpox eradication effort. He died a few months ago. He gave me an incredible amount of his time so I can understand how that whole process worked. And on the ozone layer, uh, I not only speak with um, my peers uh, in the academic world, but also practitioners. Richard Benedict, who was the chief U.S. negotiator, I spent a lot of time with him trying to understand how the reality of all this works. Um, this is the latest picture of the ozone layer. I just took it on the bottom of the ledge. And uh, you can see the hole over Antarctica. It is getting smaller now. It is getting smaller. And it will go back to where it was before we throw the CO2 to the atmosphere. This will be one of the greatest achievements in human uh, cooperation. We can do it, but then you have to ask, why are we able to do it? Well, in the case of uh, CFCs, now this took some investigation. I had a first paper that Michael mentioned. I didn't quite get there, and I knew it didn't quite get there. This is one reason I have this obsession. I keep working on these problems. We keep working on problems. Um, and um, uh, it took me a while to figure this out. But what's really going on here is you're negotiating an agreement about changing industry, changing innovation, but doing it against the backdrop of globalization. And globalization, in a way, it makes everything difficult because industries can move to other places and so on. So in a way, it makes things more difficult, but actually, for the same reason, it gives you leverage. And that's what happened in the Marshall Protocol. And this is why this treaty is so ingenious. So what this treaty could have done, is it could have done like the climate treaties and just told every country, you know, you really should come back and you should do this voluntarily. But what it did instead was to say, you need to cut back on your uh, consumption of CSDs. That's like cutting back on consumption of fossil fuels, so similar powers that way. Cut back on your production of CSDs. Now, no one is negotiating a reduction in oil production. Well, OPEC, of course, tries to do that all the time, but uh, we're not negotiating around that. So that's already a difference. And then finally, the agreement imposes a ban on trade in the CSDs, including countries that are in and the countries that are out. And that ban completely changes the incentive. And instead of getting what would have been the first dilemma of those two curves going up in parallel, which is the problem that we're not good at addressing, instead you get the curves to cross. So again, this was a deliberate move, a strategic move, by uh, an unusual set of <coughs> negotiators. So the reason this works 
is that if few other countries are in the agreement, you really don't want to come in because not only is it the usual free riding problem, but now you can't trade with those countries in the CFC, which is going to hurt you even more. But if you go to the other end here, where everyone else is in, if you're not in, you get to free ride as before, but now you also can't trade with the rest of the world. And if the loss of the gains of trade are big enough, those payoffs are going to cross. And now you can have a tipping point in a social system, not a geophysical system, a social system. And you can assure everyone that enough players will get rid of the CFC. They all want to get rid of the CFC. And in fact, uh, a former student of mine, Ulrich Wagner, who's a brilliant piece of work, empirical work, showing empirically that this is, this is exactly what happens with the Marshall Protocol. Now, getting back to climate, it turns out that we have one really good climate treaty. And it's not any of the ones I mentioned before. It's the Montreal Protocol, which was never intended to address climate change. But it turns out that the CFCs and related chemicals that deplete the ozone layer also are greenhouse gases. So if you have an agreement that is successful in getting rid of them, even without caring about climate change, just because you do care about ozone protection, then you've achieved a lot. And this paper, which came out in the PNS in around 2008 or so, I forget the exact year, 2007, 2008, by some Dutch researchers, they actually showed that the Marshall Protocol achieved five times as much as the Kyoto Protocol aimed to achieve, but never did. Five times as much. And you don't even talk about this. No one's even aware, very few people are even aware of this. So think about it. When we try to address climate change, we fail. And when we weren't trying, we succeeded. And I'm interested in this. Why is that? Well, the reason is the Marshall Protocol is a coordination system. And that's what the world is good at. So, um, you won't be surprised that my conclusion from all of this is to address climate change, we need to do what the world is good at doing. Ask countries to do what they are good at doing, which is coordination. Don't ask them to do what they're bad at doing, which is volunteering to attend the red cards when national self-interest is always pulling in the other direction. You know, we can we can wring our hands and say, no, that's terrible. You feel that way. You really should just do the right thing. We can do that. We've been doing it for 25 years. But I think it would be a, a a better arrangement just to create the incentives like we did with Montreal, um, like we did with smallpox. When nature did it for us with smallpox. And those are issues you don't even hear much people discussing because they work. We tend to ignore anything that works and we focus on the things that don't work. But the way to learn about the world is to look at situations where things work and where things don't work. Now, the world is doing something really good right now, which is to negotiate an amendment to the Montreal Protocol to phase out another chemical called HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, which were actually developed as a substitute for the nasty CFCs that deplete the ozone layer. So the HFCs don't deplete the ozone layer. That makes them very good. But they are incredibly powerful greenhouse <coughs> gases. And, and we included them under the Kyoto Protocol and achieved virtually nothing. But now there's a move to negotiate an amendment to the Protocol that will limit HFCs under that agreement, which, as I explained, is a good agreement because it's a coordination agreement. And I'm sure that will be successful. Now, that will not solve the problem of climate change, but it does get at one of the crucial factors. Remember, let's take that one off the list. That's pretty cool. That, I think, is the best news I've heard on climate change in 25 years. And you probably haven't even heard about it, no one talks about it. But 
but I think this is the best thing that's been done so far. Will be done. I think I'm very confident it will work. Now, what else do you do? This is a very provocative idea. I'm going to talk about uh, tomorrow to a group that is following Michael is organizing. And William Norhouse at Yale University has come with this idea of a climate club. There's a lot of talk about clubs today because clubs are anticipated. Everyone kind of likes clubs. I know, you know, we don't like them to, because particularly we're excluded from them. But there's something club. The club is kind of a very appealing. People kind of like the name, so it's very factual right now. Um, anyway, what he uh, argues is that you can get a group of countries, like-minded countries, that want to act on climate change, and they will not only act on their own, not in Paris, but they will actually impose tariffs against countries that don't act with them. That's the stick. Thomas Hobbes coming back. Okay, that's the stick. Now, um, one thing I want to tell you about his work is that it only works uh, in his model uh, for carbon tax uh, up to around $50 per ton CO2. I don't have time to explain exactly what this means, but in terms of the problem of climate change, that's actually not a very high number. So this is not going to save the day. Another thing about this, and I would be a little worried, I think it's an open question if this is a good idea, so I, I, it's provocative and exciting, but um, what he's basically saying is those trade rules you've been negotiating for the last several decades, because I know it's you know, factual to not like them, but actually they've delivered a lot of benefits to the world. Um, but he's saying those trade rules, throw them out. Because now all the successes on trade are conditional on you doing what we in the club, self-appointed guardians of the planet, we think you should be doing. And, and I think that that's a very provocative move and it's about retaliation. And his model, he assumes there is no retaliation. Well, models can be very careful because you, um, an assumption like that could turn out to be very important. Um, but I do think that even leaving that provocative idea aside, there are other things we can do that are much more, much more straightforward and less um, risky in a sense. Um, and what we basically need are philosophies. Uh, so we get this new one on, on Montreal Protocol. We need agreements on things like international aviation. International shipping, the way we manufacture aluminum, steel, and cement, on uh, electric cars, um, on having uh, more of a global grid for electricity distribution. All of these things would help uh, or exploit this possibility for uh, coordination. Maybe the questions I can explain a little bit more what I mean by that. But that's a very different approach we've taken so far. The nice thing about Paris is we can continue with Paris, Paris will have its followers, but you can do these other things on the side, just like we're doing the Marshall Protocol Amendment right now. We can do all these other agreements, and we should be pursuing them right now, I think, as a priority. And finally, uh, going back to the seriousness of this problem, if you really believe that uh, global mean temperature change should be limited to something like two degrees, or even three degrees, or the way we're going, even four degrees, then I think we need to think about different technologies. And the, it's not that the solutions are to be found in technologies, it's that certain tech, we will, we will behave differently as a group. That game we play will change as the technologies have different properties. So it's not only nature, but it's also the technologies themselves. Now one idea that I think deserves more attention than it's been getting up to now is something called carbon geoengineering which is not the scary geoengineering maker, I'll answer that in a second. But this is about you build machines to 
take CO2 out of the air and then store the CO2 safely someplace, like in rocks. So I have colleagues that do this. They take it out of the air, they can do that, and they can store it in places. They fix it in things like rocks, so it'll never come out again. Nature, by the way, does that. If you wait thousands of years, that CO2 in the atmosphere will eventually be taken up in rocks. Okay? It just takes a long time. That's, that's uh, in a sense, that's the problem. There's virtually no research being done on this today. I think that's outrageous, because this is the only uh, backstop technology we have for dealing with climate change. There should be a program for research. Uh, in particular, I believe that if this technology has certain properties, it's possible that this could be a coordination problem. And we'll solve the problem not by changing behavior worldwide, but by building a project, a public project that's big enough that can remove the CO2 from the atmosphere. We don't have to worry so much about behavior. I just think, I'm not an advocate for this. I just think it's outrageous that no one's, there's not a serious study being done on this now, and it deserves a lot more attention. And the last point I want to mention is the scary form of geoengineering. You probably heard of this idea of geoengineering, which is that you would do something like throw particles into the atmosphere, stratosphere, to reflect light away from the Earth, and so to cool the Earth, to offset the effect of greenhouse gas uh, concentration. Um, now, you could do this in modified temperature, and we know that's true because Mother Nature does it through volcanic eruption. We know that's true. It's not a substitute for the um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere because they have different effects on radiative forces. So it's not as if the global climate would be the same when you do geoengineering as when you um, deal with the problem properly. Right? The carbon geoengineering is similar because you're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, on the other hand, I think people should be open to the idea if you really think catastrophic climate change exists, and you really think we can't go along beyond two degrees, and you know that this can be done, and you know it would work, I would like to answer the question as to why we're not looking into this more carefully, because uh, if the day comes when we think something needs to be done, wouldn't it be useful to know whether this would work, what its risks are, and so on? Again, there's kind of a silence around this. I'm not an advocate for this. I think that I've been saying, I wish we could do this. I wish we could do things properly, but there are reasons why we're not doing it properly, and I think we have to be open to these other suggestions. This one, as I thought about it more and more, this is almost like science fiction. Uh, this is not, you know, straight science, because you're talking about a future world, future people, future governance arrangements, future technology. It's a different kind of thing, and I don't even, I'm not even sure I'm equipped to, to think about it very carefully. But I'm guessing that what will happen is instead of there being one global solidarity about clicking a switch to throw particles in the atmosphere, but probably what you'll have is uh, uh, many different countries doing many different things. And all of that adding up to deliberate interference, which is on top of our inadvertent interference. People seem to care if it's deliberate or not, but any interference is an interference. And then there will be a need to coordinate around that. And I think if we blind ourselves to this future, we may end up finding ourselves going down a route that we're completely unprepared for. So I'm not suggesting this is any kind of good thing. I'm also not trying to scare you about it. I think it's a lot we don't know. But I think if we don't consider these options, we're also doing the future as a service. Remember, this problem is going to be with us for millennia. Thank you very much.
I have my money down here. Um, it's because there's not only coordination in this university, there's also cooperation across faculties and disciplines, and that's a joint event, uh, IPR and economics. So, um, we have a little bit of time to take some questions. Um, who would like to... Yes. First, thank you very much for that. It's fantastic. Um, but looking through your suggestions, you didn't seem to touch upon the agriculture industry uh, at all throughout it, and I wonder what your stance was on the agriculture industry. Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know a lot. I, don't, I, I really won't say very much. I don't know a lot about it. Obviously, um, quite a lot of emissions come through agriculture. Um, there may be things we can do on coordination. I have given it a thought of a colleague who has been thinking about that recently. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little wary of areas where measuring and so on start to get really problematic. I'm looking for as much simplicity as possible. Um, so I, I, I recognize that the problem, I, 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 I leave that to you and, and the other experts, and my apologies for not giving you a, a better answer. Or unless you meant agriculture being damaged by climate change. That's well, the agriculture industry is like the food, part, part the food, sort of the food sector and the agriculture market. Yeah, I mean, one, one, last thing I want to say one thing about this, and it is important, and that is that um, uh, 
one of the areas that we're most worried about is actually not necessarily sea level rise, <coughs> not only sea level rise, but also uh, the, the global food system and whether there could be a bigger factor. There's some very interesting research, including by uh, a colleague of mine, Wilson Schlenker, showing that you not only have these nonlinearities in the geophysical system, but also with crops. And you particularly get a sensitivity, it varies a little bit with the crop, but you get a very deep sensitivity in the neighborhood of around 30 uh, degrees centigrade. Um, uh, now, we don't know what the potential for advancement in, um, uh, in, in um, science to engineer uh, uh, varieties that can perform better under these changing conditions. Um, but there is a risk that the catastrophe that we're thinking of won't actually come from, um, from the geophysical systems. It may come from our agricultural systems. It may also come from uh, just our social interactions work linking climate change to, um, to violence, for example. Um, so I think these are really early days. We're, we're moving into these uncharted waters but there is some interesting recent empirical work showing that these risks are uh, should be a great concern to us. What question? So um, one of the next problems, which I see is on a global scale, is that of ocean plastics, where we've got eight million tons of plastic being added to the ocean every year, and it's just going to international waters and no one's kind of taking ownership of that. I don't know if you've looked into this or any of these models that you've looked at today can be applied to that. Um, yeah, it's just... Yeah, I, I, it's a great uh, question. I've thought about it a little bit. Uh, I was in Cape Cod, I walked the beach a lot, and even nice people uh, on the boats, they can't control their plastics. Uh, you get all sorts of things that wash up on the shore. And of course, you know that there are these um, certain parts of the ocean where you get
Uh, but there was still there was a lot of scientific uncertainty in 1987. Um, there was a lot of opposition by industry. Um, so uh, in those ways, similar to climate change, um, of course, there's a narrower problem. Our whole economic systems are not built on photocarbon, so a narrower problem. Um, but I think the, the genius of Montreal was that it focused on creating these incentives. Basically, it got everyone to believe that the world we had become accustomed to, in which countries were using CSPs, was not going to exist in the future. And the future world was going to pay off for the players that developed the substitute for the CSPs. And once everyone believed that, that the firms all turned their interest towards the substitutes, not try to make money off of uh, the, uh, the original CSPs, we've had, we've not had that same transformation in our energy system. Um, and when, when the system works well, we'll see that kind of transformation. But it's not, it wasn't the people. I mentioned uh, Richard Benedict, who was one of the chief negotiators on, on Montreal. Richard actually advocated a system very similar to what we have on climate change now in, 19, in the late 1980s, right after Montreal. And he admitted to me later, I think there really life off people like that, because if you're in a position of having to make decisions, how many of those people ever admit they made a mistake? But he admitted to me that that was a mistake. He got the strategy wrong. I think the reason they've avoided the same system is partly you, you really would have to ask fossil fuel producers to stop producing. I mean, tell the Australians, stop producing coal at that kind of level. And also, everyone's avoided. And also, um, um, uh, I think there's a greater worry about the trade side. Because instead of restricting trade on CSEs, which is a pretty small part of the economy, everything, every single thing we do, including my lecture, contributes to CO2. And, um, uh, and everything is affected by the climate. And if you apply trade measures, I think there is a risk. It's not a, I, I'm not convinced yet that it's any kind of easy to do. OK, I, I'm sorry I have to be out of time. Um, so I would like to thank Prof very much for his talk. I think it was very inspiring. I think uh, people will continue to discuss. Um, I think it was a fantastic talk, and I could learn a lot. The first one, uh, he was talking a lot about tipping points, and you may recall, he says, you know, that can be a catastrophic event, and it's important to make a difference if you know for certainty there's this tipping point. And he proved the theory right, because obviously he was uncertain about the exact time he could talk and went over that. So what I take away from that, that next time the tipping point must be that his mic was switched off. <laughs> the other thing, uh, and the vice chancellor confirmed me in that, what I said before in my orientation, was you may recall that what uh, I think is very special about Scott, that he can reach out not only to economists, but only to also to other economists. And obviously you reach out to the vice chancellor, because when, when you talked about this card game, she wasn't so much interested in the card game, but um, she's a true academic, and she immediately spotted that you made not very clear your assumption, because she said, you have to say that there are more than five players, 
otherwise your account doesn't work. So I think this is remarkable, and um, she spotted that immediately. So that I think proves it that um, with her background in psychology, that it was easy to follow your lecture. So let me uh, finish this uh, subject lecture and this honorary degree ceremony by thanking Scott for coming here. I'd like to thank the Vice Chancellor to make herself available to that, to Nick, the Director of IPR, and in particular, I'd like to thank you for coming here and participating in the debate. Thank you very much.